Welcome to this week's episode of The Isolationists, where we will be talking to Jay Rosenstein. Aside from being a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning independent documentary producer, teacher, and writer, Jay Rosenstein was an abandoned college, of which is rumored to have shared the stage with my dad. Jay is a perfect example of DIY gone right, unlike your sad attempt at a DIY chia pet this isolation season. Instead of doing your shit crafts, enjoy some wisdom and jokes from the creator of In Whose Honor, a film telling the story of the movement to remove the racist mascot from U of I, Chief Alinawick. The story, another film, The Lord is Not on Trial Here Today, focusing on the story of the lawsuit that led to the separation of church and state within public schools. And the Amazon Chorus, covering the journey of queer chorus group standing up against discrimination. Jay's work is so mind-blowingly good, it even blows himself away that he did it. Sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Adios. Did it work? I guess for now. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Great. Jesus. Finally. I don't know what's going on. Well, thanks so much for doing it. I'm not sure what I'm doing, but how are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I started a podcast because it's isolation time. Yeah. So most thrilling thing of my day. Were you were you sent home from wherever you were? Yeah, uh, I was in Spain. I was in Barcelona, uh-huh. and oh, yeah. yeah, that was like there were rumors that it was going to be the next Italy. So it was kind of like everyone was sprinting as fast as they could to the you know the dock or the right. airport, whatever they were using to get home. <laughs> yeah, my daughter was in Paris. Um, wow. And in fact, uh, her spring break, she was planning on going to Italy. That's right when sort of everything exploded. Jeez. Um, were you scared for her? Or were you like, hell she yes, got it? because I, because she's as stubborn as I am. And I didn't think that she would <laughs> even consider changing her plans of going to Italy. So at first, I was just relieved that she didn't go to Italy for spring break. Um, yeah, and then pretty quickly, you know, things bottomed Seriously. out. Seriously. Yeah, I was yeah. planning on waiting it out in Ireland, and my mom was cool with that, but because uh, I found a job, you know, wow. just to do some, like, to live on a farm, and I actually started it, but uh, yeah, then my dad was too scared. He was like, nope, my daughter's not dying abroad. Nope. <laughs> yeah. But, uh. Good old Kurt Morrison. So, uh... <laughs> right? exactly no uh so how's your your isolation been though what have you been been up to if that's something you want or not um yeah sure okay okay well let's begin okay hello jay welcome to the isolationist thank you julia nice to hear from you again (laughs) you too so how's your isolation going what have you been up to well um 
in a lot of ways, believe it or not, my isolation has not been that different than my normal life. <laughs> um, to be Same honest. with my dad. <laughs> he, well, I don't know about your dad. Your dad has to see people to play music, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but, you have to see uh, people to do your job, though. No, I don't. That's what I found out. <laughs> I don't ah. have to see anybody. <laughs> um, so, you know, the biggest thing is I've been here with my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter's been with her mom and we've just kept it that way. So it's just been me and my 15 year old uh, so far for the entire thing, um, which actually has been kind of great, <laughs> uh, you know, because never really spent that much time with her. And so it's, it's been pretty nice. And um, it's nice to have a teenage daughter who's still talking to me. <laughs> uh, so that's good too um you know but the biggest issue that i have i don't know if you knew this but um i have a wife who lives in brooklyn new york mm -hmm. and um the last time i saw her was february 18th oh, and so i was scheduled to go out there on march 13th which was supposed to be the start of my spring break and then common sense we decided to cancel and so I haven't seen her since then, and we're still not exactly sure when we're going to see each other again. Aww. So that is... Um, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, if they were in their 50s, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no. So that and, um, you know, I had started playing music out again. And so for the past six months, I had had a monthly gig with a band wow, and sweet. I was it was really it felt like it was really starting to kind of lock in so those are really the about the only two things that have really changed for me um in any big way being and of course then I was forced to teach online um like mm -hmm. everyone else uh and you know that I don't particularly like um but I had to do it so I did it yeah I feel like jokes don't roll the same which is the best part of class. Well, the best part of class for me is the um, is getting to know personally the students. And that just doesn't happen when yeah. you're online. And so I actually had to do an eight-week class, so a second half of the semester class, which was entirely online. So I never actually met the students. And I'm not even sure even now how many are actually still in the class or not. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I had uh, like asynchronous Zoom classes. And that's because, you know, I, besides the issues with, um, you know, people's economics, and there's a lot, you know, some people uh, maybe can't afford to have, you know, good internet connections or yeah. computer, you know, you don't know what their living situations are. But besides that, you know, I realized right from the beginning, let's see, I had one student from Korea. So for her to be there live on cl in class, it was 2 a.m. there. Wow. You know, so, th so things like that. So I had asynchronous meetings and less than half of the people actually showed up. So at least I saw what those half looked like. <laughs> and that's about it. And, um, and <laughs> I have students handing stuff in and then not handing stuff in and um, I haven't even quite finished grading, uh, so I'm still not even sure who's really in the class or not. So, um, 
Yeah, I've read about uh, how how taxing it is, you know, men all the same things you were just doing, but online. And then without the the real connection to that's sure. It's a bummer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, for instance, you know, like we're doing this now. Would this be happening if I had you an online student? Maybe you just because I knew your dad. But, you know, if I hadn't known your dad, I wouldn't know anything about you or who you are. Right. Yeah. And, um, but because uh, you were in my class, I know who you are personally. And so, you know, we have a friendship and mm -hmm. that's the best part, really, of teaching. Totally. So uh, could you uh, tell me about yourself? Well, I know about you, but the viewers. Your listeners. <laughs> the thousand listeners. Yes. All right. Thanks. Well, <laughs> well, I'm not sure what is significant or not, but um, I am currently in uh, the twilight of my career as a professor at the University of Illinois where I'm in the Department of Media and Cinema Studies. And this was my 20th year uh, teaching there. And um, I'm also a documentary filmmaker. And I started that in the early 90s. Um, but I've sort of uh, discontinued doing that over the last couple of years. And um, what else? Uh, once upon a time, I was a musician playing for five years in an original rock band and Sick. met some interesting friends during that period. One of them by the name of Kurt Morrison, who was this <laughs> obnoxious, arrogant, just full of himself kid. Seriously. <laughs> Big time. Bragging. He is just so arrogant, that kid. <laughs> Anyways. And so, you know, actually one of the fun parts of life is that all of a sudden, his daughter happens to be in my class, so that's kind of cool. I'm so glad I, I was featured such a big role within your description of your life. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure yeah, that's you, <laughs> you did, you did. Oh, but so uh, I wait, I'll tell you a few other things though that are right, important. Good, I have two daughters, ages 15 and 19, so um, one's already an adult. And uh, what else? I just got married for the second time in June. And uh, I'm a, been a member for the past, how many years? 22 years. I've been a member of New Day Films, which is a filmmaker-owned co-op where we distribute um, social issue documentaries. And that's actually been probably one of the most significant um, associations that I've ever had in my life because I've made so many great friends through New Day. Cool. Uh, I'm currently uh, what we call the finance minister, but in corporate speak, that would mean that I'm the um, chief financial officer, uh, which is really cool. And um, New Day's where I met my wife, too. So um, that's actually New Day's played a really, really important role in my life for the past 22 years. How did you get into the New Day Association? Well, when I finished um, the film In Whose Honor, which, um, you know, I finished in, but I actually finished it in 1996. And uh, coming up on that, I'd been reading about things about distribution. And so I knew that 
it would probably be a really good film um, for educational distribution. And uh, so there was this conference I went to, which no longer exists. Uh, and I, it went in 96 and it was something called like the National Educational Media something or other uh, took place in Oakland. And I went there and basically what it was was um, in many ways, it's sort of like a meat market where you had all these different educational distributors were there and then all these different filmmakers were there. And, you know, you're sort of trying to match make. Mm -hmm. And so while I was there, you know, I got to meet some of these different distributors. Uh, but New Day really caught my eye because um, it's different than all the others, because all the others were sort of traditional companies. But New Day is a filmmaker owned co-op. Um, and that just sort of appealed to me because pretty much everything I, I've done in my life has been done um, with a sort of DIY philosophy. You know, mm -hmm. that's how I did music and that's how I made documentary and still make documentaries. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should distribute this way, too, because uh, if you do that through New Day, I would learn how to distribute as opposed to just giving your film to some company and sitting back and hoping that they sell it uh, in New Day. You know, you're basically responsible for selling your own film, but you do it as a member of a co-op so there's lots of resources and people and sharing ideas and, yeah. and all kinds of less, other things. less yeah. hierarchical yeah uh well it's very non-hierarchical hierarchical actually <laughs> so i thought well that'd be great because you know i'll learn how to do it if nothing else cool. and so um so that's why i decided to go with new day and um it stands as one of the best maybe the best, you know, not counting your kids, that's in a different <laughs> category, but maybe otherwise the best decision I've ever made in my life. Cool. So with that idea of like, uh, kind of learning things yourself, uh, I'm throughout independent documentary filmmaking, um, what skills or facets of, of independent filmmaking did you really have to put in work to learn and what were you just blessed with or had studied luckily i had to learn everything on my own um i didn't even know that it was possible to learn it any other way so um you know i i, I just i didn't even know that it was a thing that you could do <laughs> like you could be a filmmaker. you studied journalism right well, I later, much later in life. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, and even in that, you know, the, the journalism program here at Illinois, where I got a master's, you know, it's just geared toward you either do print journalism and they're going to train you to write for a newspaper or you do what they call broadcast journalism and they're going to train you to be a TV news reporter. So even those things really had wow. pretty much no relevance to what I was interested in doing in documentary. Um, so, uh, you know, I had a pretty strong technical background. Um, I was an electrical engineering major, but that's not really the reason why. The reason why is, you know, I was because of music. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of musicians become, you know, sort of electronic geeks, at least people who, you know, like guitar players and people who are involved in music in ways that, you know, are involved in electronics and and recording especially 
you know, so I, I'd been really interested in working and recording and all that. So, you know, I brought a lot of those skills in to filmmaking, which isn't so common, really, you know, like not a lot of filmmakers get into it with very many technical skills. Um, so otherwise, you know, there was this teacher at Illinois, his name was Jerry Landay, and he was this, he had been a reporter for CBS nationally. Um, so he had, you know, some pretty serious credentials and he mm -hmm. came to teach at Illinois and he was such a fish out of water. He was just a typical sort of New York born and raised and then Washington DC press corps kind of guy. So he was really, you know, gruff and uh, impatient and had the loudest voice you ever heard in your life. And so the, all the students were scared to death of him. But for some reason, uh, I bonded with him really well. He, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. And uh, as part of being in CBS, you know, at the time he was, he was, he worked for CBS at the time when it was really like sort of the classic home for the birth of broadcast journalism, you know, like mm -hmm. the eras of um, Edward R. Murrow and Fred Friendly. And, you know, this is, this is like, these guys are like saints, you know, in the history of, of broadcast journalism. And so CBS was the place. And so he worked there. And, and part of, you know, what they did in those days was they did documentaries, you know, like the news, like CBS had documentaries and they did documentary series. And so Jerry was loved documentary and really, really believed very passionately and very deeply in the power of documentary to, um, to influence social change. And so he was hired here and, you know, you had to teach news and all that other crap, but they let him <laughs> teach a, a documentary class. Now, Jerry didn't know a thing about how to operate a piece of equipment. He had absolutely zero technical skills. Um, he was simply a writer and reporter and nothing more. Um, but I took a class of his, which in a very, very most general way is maybe kind of like the classes that I teach now. Mm -hmm. Meaning it, it was almost like, you know, documentary appreciation in a way. And so um, I, I got accepted as a non-degree student just so I could take his class. And um, and it really hooked me, you know, um, his passion really rubbed off on me. And that sort of sent me on my way. Sir, how did the learning about journalism then affect your approach towards documentary or, or view of the world? Uh, not much, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, I did it because I was sort of insecure about, I felt like I didn't know how to interview. And there were some mm. core skills that I didn't know how to do. And as it turns out, I did. Um, you know, that's sort of what I found out was that, oh, I already know how to do this. Uh, but, you know, I was an adult as well. And um so it was sort of like I needed that confidence boost, you yeah. know, and, and I, didn't know how to, like, I didn't know how to write. <laughs> I didn't know how to write in that sort of journalistic way. But then, you know, I quickly realized that that has nothing to do with really documentary. Um, so it was, it was just sort of to gain confidence in a way. It just gave me confidence that, um, you know, that I, I already possessed those kind of skills. Yeah. So, you know, it's certainly not necessary. And, 
not necessarily even common for filmmakers to come out of a journalism tradition, although um, there's a grad program at UC Berkeley, which is sort of like that's the place where really good documentary filmmakers come out of who come out with a journalism tradition. I, I don't know why I feel like in your class and, and from the way you had us analyze and, and uh, think for ourselves, it was, you know, you mentioned the idea of, uh, you know, uh, objectivity not being a complete, you can't be completely objective ever and thus you need to abide by these, these rules. And that felt like such a academically moral sort of way of teaching. I, I feel like with what you see on YouTube now and, and like Vice and everything, it's, it's, you know, less respectful and more, you know, with the intention of just getting the most views. So I know it, it feels like that's more acad academic, but maybe not. Way. Well, I think there's some fundamental uh, ethical things that you have to pay attention to or you should pay attention to. And I think that both media makers and more importantly, media consumers need to be more aware of those things. Um, otherwise, you live in a country where the president says, hey, I heard if you drink some bleach, it'll cure uh, this virus. Mm -hmm. And then a huge segment of the population is stupid enough to go out and follow him and do it. Um, so, you know, I think as a world, certainly as a nation, uh, we need better skills in terms of evaluating the veracity of what kind of what we hear through media. So the, maybe that is kind of an academic point of view, but um, that doesn't change the fact that I think it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we see that, especially now, given the state of the world where, you know, you have this whole kind of segment of the population that just refuses to believe that we actually have a pandemic. And they think that Bill Gates has started the whole thing because yeah, he wants absolutely. to track or whatever the latest idiotic thing is. But, you know, once upon a time, that kind of idiotic thinking would be confined to the furthest furthest margins of people and it's not anymore there's like a section of the mainstream that believes some of this incredible nonsense um and you know one one reason one factor in that is that um people don't know how to consume media in just sort of a basic critical way and that's one of the primary things that i actually try to teach in my class mm -hmm. Because, you know, pretty much none of the students I have are actually going to go out and be documentary filmmakers. But you're all going to have to spend your life consuming media. Totally. So I feel like that's a more important thing for me to teach. So as our, like, interaction with technology and, and the state of democracy in the same time are, like, simultaneously changing within the United States, do you see propaganda in documentary filmmaking as a growing issue or, or threat? Or do you see it as dying because of, of our access to so many different sources? 
Well, I can answer that two ways. First of all, um, it's unclear anymore, you know, to some extent, what is documentary and what isn't, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure you realize that too, you know, like, you know, is, uh, you know, segment on vice, is that documentary? Uh, you know, it and is, uh, is t a multi-part series, Tiger King, is that documentary? You know, so the whole form and format of what we used to call documentary has changed so drastically that it, I think it's really hard to even separate out what is what is and what isn't documentary. But to answer your question about propaganda, I don't know that um, that it's ever been more dangerous than it is now. And that's because media access is so ubiquitous and media making is so ubiquitous. So it's that much easier both to make propaganda and to distribute propaganda. Um, so I think it's worse than it ever was. And so college campuses, which you have had be mostly like the site for all three documentaries, correct? Like Champaign, Champaign Illinois, yeah. Um, so they've historically it's, uh, been a place for protests and social movements from like Howard Zinn's leadership in, in Boston University to civil rights protests and to like last year at U of I's graduate employee strike. So how has your sort of interaction with um, the political environment of, uh, of a college campus, how have you seen that change over the years in, in uh, congruence to technology changing as well? Um, I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at here. You're kind of pulling on some different threads all at the same time. Um, are you asking me how technology has affected, you know, social activism at the University of Illinois? Is that yeah. The question? And yeah, as you've, you've been on campus, especially the same campus for so many years, you've seen how, <laughs> no, but you've seen how, I mean, I, I assume you, you've seen the change of, of student, whether it's student letter, just participation in social movements. And uh, with the, the now access to uh, technology and in, in, in different forms of, of protesting, do you see that environment uh, choosing different facets to express themselves or, or are things dying or things uh, emerging that you were surprised by or hmm. well let me kind of contextualize it this way i would not um <clears throat> i don't consider the university of illinois at champaign urbana a particularly political activist mm -hmm. school um, certainly, uh, you know, for instance, my wife teaches at Hunter College, which is in Manhattan, and there's no comparison between the two in terms of uh, political awareness and political activism. Uh, you know, things are just so much more activism oriented there, for instance, than here. So, um, you know, Illinois is not completely, you know, devoid of any sort of activism. 
but I, you know, I wouldn't consider it particularly activist at all. And um, I do think it's gotten less and less so. And I don't know if that mirrors what's happening nationally mm -hmm. or not. Um, but here, certainly, and you know, for instance, I think one aspect of that that influences that has to do with um, the rise in the number of international students, particularly from countries where, you know, there is no history of activism or activism is dangerous, mm -hmm. right? It's really suppressed. So, you know, a lot of students come here from China, you know, and so, you know, the idea of speaking out the way Americans do it is, you know, is not something that they maybe are as familiar with. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, I think in general, if you compare college students uh, from the 60s, and when I say the 60s, the 60s to me actually lasted, 60s actually go from about 1966 to almost 1980 is what I would consider really the 60s until Ronald Reagan was elected. Um, and so there was, I think, in general, students, people of that age were maybe more activist. But again, there's a lot of places in the country that um, there's a lot more activism than there is here mm -hmm. in Illinois. You know, as far as technology goes, I think, you know, one thing it does is it makes it so that students, for instance, here are connected up with any and all national movements that they want to be connected with, you know? And so maybe, you know, it's less important that you do things locally when you can just, you know, be attached to something that's going on nationally. Um, but I, I'm not someone who could really, I don't know that I'm really educated enough. To, no, that was, that was good. <laughs> to have a lot to say about what, what's happening in our country in that mm -hmm. way, you know, because, you know, with, with Donald Trump and I mean, God, everything is so insane. And, you know, we're now a country where we're split, not just by politics, but by living in completely different realities, you know? And I think people from the left you know, and people from the right now live in completely different realities. And it wasn't always like that. So I don't feel that I can even have a decent conversation with a lot of people from the right because there's sort of no basis of facts mm -hmm. that we could even agree on, you know? It's very so like, dangerous. for instance, what can I say to someone who believes that the COVID-19 is a myth. Like, where do you even start? <laughs> like, how can I have a conversation with a person like that, right? Or how can I have a conversation with a person who believes that Obama is a Muslim who was born in mm -hmm. Kenya? You know, there you have to have some kind of basic foundation where you agree on some kind of reality <laughs> in order to go from there. And that's not there. And so it's impossible. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's my view of what's going on nationally. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where that leaves us, but obviously 
you know, the, the University of Illinois and Champaign, Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois now, I should say Champaign County. We call it Shampoo Champaign Banana. County. <laughs> well, Champaign County, like everything else in this area, which is, um, you know, what you'd refer to as downstate for people who live up in the mm -hmm. Chicago area like you do and where I come from, um, you know, Champaign-Urbana used to be exactly like everywhere else downstate, which was basically 100% Republican and conservative. Yep. And uh, really, it's only in about the past 20 years that there has been a uh, complete turnaround in that Champaign County has become very majority Democratic in terms of politics, you know, Democrats and much more liberal. And so now Champaign County is you know, a little blue island in this huge sea of red that we're surrounded by. Um, and that's fairly recent. So, you know, the University of Illinois itself used to be this kind of little blip of, you know, liberalism in mm -hmm. this community that was totally Republican and conservative. And now that's sort of spread to where the whole county is like that now. Um, so that's a significant political change that I've seen here. Yeah, especially from your documentary, The Lord's Not on Trial Here Today, like that being sort of the impetus of, of taking religion out of schools, which people didn't even question, you know, for a long time. It's come a long way, but well, it the, still has... Yeah, there's still <laughs> places in the country that... that refuse to even believe that, you know, who don't abide by that at all. Um, and there's, you know, still a whole segment of the population that's trying to destroy that. And, and actually, I think we now have a Supreme Court that's been seated that will probably get rid of a lot of those protections Jesus. that people like Vashti McCollum won as far as um, separation of church and state is concerned. Um, but actually, you know, the, the Lord is not on trial here today, looks at Champaign-Urbana in the 40s, but even up until the 70s, this was still a very ultra right-wing conservative, very, very segregated, racist place. You know, like basketball, African-American athletes, right, from the high schools in the Chicago area, they did not want to come here, like to play basketball and football. You know, they couldn't recruit black players because this community was so freaking racist. And that, and that went on really up until the 70s. I don't think it started to ease up much until the 1980s. But again, that part of this community has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, now the state rep from Champaign-Urbana is an African-American woman. I mean, that was, that you couldn't have imagined that if your life depended on it you know, even 30 years ago. All right. So I have to cut it here so we don't go over the uh, amount, sure. but can I send you another link and have like 10 more minutes possibly? Cool yeah, beans. Sure. Thanks. Hello again. Where's Mortison? 
All right. So in Spanish, it's I'm here. (laughs) Thank you. Sorry, I've been out of English for a while. (laughs) I wish I knew another language. It's pretty fun. It's actually thrilling. It makes regular day activities 10 times more satisfying. Yeah, I can can imagine that. That's cool. Well, back to what you're saying. So from a student's perspective, going to U of I was a, a big shock just in how many sort of farm folk I was meeting and, and that sort of uh, mentality politically, mm-hmm. um, not to generalize, but they don't have the responsibility of, of being sort of aware of, of issues that, that more city folk or mm-hmm. you know people with a more international community deal with. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily their fault, but that's why your documentary in whose honor uh, I think was so fascinating because it's, you know, this, they don't really see the problem. So I was wondering why, why do you think the concept of removing uh, Native American mascots from sports teams or businesses attracts such intense opposition by their supporters, despite a clear uh, Native American, you know, consensus that those things are harmful? And how was the process yeah. of making that? Well, I think um, one reason is because it hits right at the intersection of some of the most powerful forces in America. And it hits at the intersection of sports, which is really religion in America, right? It's not just sports, it's religion. So it hits at that intersection of sports um, and racism. Uh, And there's probably something else. I guess you could put alcohol in there too, I suppose. Um, And gender. (laughs) And gender, which, yeah, usually goes hand in hand with racism, I guess. So, um, you know, it's right in that sweet spot. And, um, you know, the, the sort of the stubbornness and the inability to see any other perspective but one's own is actually pretty typical for all for 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 sports. Like, I would say that that's that's the way the typical sports fan is. Um, and so, you know, you would get to some extent, not totally. Okay, this is where it's an intersection. You know, mm-hmm. when, when, you know, if the Green Bay Packers tried to change the name of the team, you know, there would be an outcry, the likes of which you've never heard before. But, you know, it would be, it's worse if it's because it's brown-skinned people asking white-skinned people to do it. So it adds that extra element of, uh I'm not going to let a minority tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. So it's both of those things. But, you know, sports fans are insane when it comes to wanting to hold on to their traditions. But then again, you look at, yeah, but there have been plenty of teams that have changed their names with barely any protest. But, you know, you dare try to do it essentially to be civil to another person and that's unacceptable, particularly if that person has brown skin. So again, it, it just hits at that 
intersection between race and sports. Yeah, those fans can definitely just be capable together, you know, united of of some severe damage. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that surprised you um, as a reaction to that film or... Well, it's only in the past two years that I got the biggest surprise of all. And um, it's probably because of social media, because social media um, makes it possible for you to see under the rock that you never saw under before, to see all the like Mm -hmm. little squirming maggot type organisms that are living under that rock and um, social media puts them right in your face and so you know two years ago I got arrested for um, uh, investigating I was investigating the way in which um, employees of the University of Illinois were helping to facilitate the uh, presentation of the former mascot at the University of Illinois, which is in violation of their agreements with the NCAA, which I thought mm-hmm. this is a serious story. Um, and I won't go through the, the actual details of what happened other than to say that I've now been in litigation over it for uh, almost two years. Um, and so I've, du- I'm involved in dual lawsuits. Somebody sued me and now I count and sued them. So, um, but the part of it that answers your question is after that happened um, and then I became this huge social media kind of target uh, mm-hmm. in a way that I had never experienced before. And I had no idea the level of hatred, just raw, just raw, you know, um, unfettered hatred i'd never experienced anything like that and i couldn't even believe it's almost impossible to believe that it was there and it was all directed at me personally um and uh you know and so you know within whose honor um you know it felt like i was mostly just on a different political side with people i never felt threatened And I never really was threatened for, you Mm -hmm. know, 20 years. You know what I mean? You know, occasionally, like, someone would write something nasty about me in the letters to the editor in the newspaper. Okay, you know, I could laugh that off. It's just like, okay, you know, there's some crazies. But then this thing that started two years ago, I'd never experienced anything like it. And um, uh, it it really profoundly changed me as a person. Um, I will say that it taught me how to hate in a way that I didn't know how to before. (laughs) So I got like a great lesson in hatred. Um, And it's left a lot of scars. And so. um, I'm sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) But it's. Coming from like your documentary, which I feel like has done so much educationally and you know, has has helped give a voice to a a really decimated population. It's sad that it has to, you know, turn so violent. Yeah, but let's, you know, 
let me just say that I think every woman, to some extent, is forced to experience something along those lines mm. from social media. Like, you know more than I do, but let's face it, just your average woman, the kind of stuff that you have to deal with, you know, through completely the internet that that is that happens to every woman you know so you know just a whole era right in it's a just sense like normal our, life oh totally. yeah another guy sent me a dick pic another guy's calling me a bitch exactly right? I mean, it's like everyday things that women have to deal with so anyways <laughs> i just don't i don't want to sound like i'm some kind of martyr or that i have it worse than anybody because you know what just women have to deal with in a day-to-day life is so disgusting well in, on behalf know. of the women <laughs> thank you and well, uh true, right? <laughs> no no completely uh we have we have to deal with so much pain <laughs> and yeah. pretend to smile about it right. um so lighter question if you were uh forced by aliens right now to make a documentary uh what would it be about the aliens are aggressive I think it would be about the aliens forcing me to make a documentary about <laughs> That is not an option. <laughs> well, I have some things that I that are that I've been interested in doing that don't involve aliens necessarily. Um, and maybe I'll maybe I'll get back to it. You know, I think you know I'm I'm very close to retiring from teaching, and so. Um, I'm thinking that possibly when I retire, I'll start to get back into some level of filmmaking. Um, so, you know, I guess I don't need any aliens to push me in that direction. What ideas do you got? Well, here's the thing, you know, you don't want to say it because then you'd feel like All right, no pressure. an idiot if you don't do it. It has to do with the... <laughs> One has to do with a story, actually a story in Chicago that I've, I've long wanted Ooh. to do, and it's still there. Um, and uh, but I don't related? want to say what it is. What's that? Music related? No, but I do have another one that I thought of that would be music related, but, you know, I doubt I just, I'll do it. I just see. watched this uh, really DIY documentary about the punk scene of, like, the 80s or something in Chicago all in this oh. one specific house that um this building that eventually got burned by the uh, they think it was the fire department because <laughs> they were just so you know it brought the the drag characters and, and punk people who you know deep down are pretty nice but it really threatens the you know the neighborhood's reputation when you have men in lipstick apparently but it was yeah. so YouTube documentary. <laughs> well, um, yeah. But no, there is something about music that I've long been interested in, but I probably won't do it. But it, it would be the story of um, someone who was a, once back in the 60s and 70s, a really famous who ended up going to prison and he's still there. Um, I think it'd be interesting to do that if I were able to get access to him. Um, but, you know, that's about it. I wish you luck. <laughs> I wish you luck, too. <laughs> um, so 
I'll do like two more questions if that's all right. Yeah, that's fine. I just want to know when we can talk, when I can start asking you questions about what you're up to. Do you really want to know? Yeah. <laughs> eh, I'm not that interesting. Mm. But um, let me think. So can you uh, paint me a picture of what it was like to create a documentary when you first started creating them and, and how the, what was the most difficult part or what challenges made you want to cry because I bet it was a lot taking on all the, the interviewing and editing on yourself um, yeah I cried a lot <laughs> really I felt like every night in bed I laid awake in bed for four years going I don't know can I do this I don't know how to do this how am I going to do this um, and again that was because you know I had I had no mentors. I had no guidance. Yeah. And a, a big difference back then, like when I made In Whose Honor, which we're talking about, I would say I started it in 93, and then it really was fully released in 97. That's about the timetable. You know, a huge problem then was access to equipment, which is no longer an issue, you know. So, um, you know, where are you going to get a camera? for starters, right? You know, you have a camera in your pocket right now <laughs> and on your computer right now that um, has resolution that's infinitely better than the best professional cameras in that time. So it's like, how are you going to get your hands on a camera? How are you going to afford to buy tape, right? So, you know, I would be doing a shoot. I'd be interviewing someone and it'd be getting close to the 30 minutes because the I shot it on beta cam and the tapes were 30 minutes. And I'd be like, should I just end it now? Because if I go to another 30, that's another 25 bucks right there. Another tape. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, and then of course, editing, you had to have access to an edit suite that were really more expensive than an individual could ever own. So, you know, you, you had to solve that problem and it was a big problem and the plus side of that problem was it meant that way fewer films were being made because it was so much harder to make a film. So mm. that meant if you were able to make a film, you know, the, the, it wasn't so crowded and you'd have a better chance of getting it seen as opposed to now, like you said, you go on YouTube and there's, you know, a hundred thousand documentaries. Um, so that's the other side of it. It's so, you know, you don't have to worry about that. But, you know, I, I worried about everything because I had to figure out how to do everything myself. So I had to learn how to do it and then do it for this thing. So I had to teach myself how to shoot um, at least well enough to get away with it, you know. And I had to teach myself how to light an interview so that I could pull it off. Um, audio was never a problem because I had that background. So that part I always understood. And then, you know, I had to learn how to, you know, conduct an interview. And then I had to learn how to structure a story and research a story. Um, you know, so it was a lot. Um, so I can't really say what was the hardest part because it was all, <laughs> it was all hard. But um, I think, um, I'm, I'm, I, it, it amazes me that I did it. Like it's looking so back badass. It, I'm like, I don't even know how I did that. 
Um, Are there any scenes where you watch them and you just get the feeling of, of pain that you felt where you're like, <laughs> no, damn, it's I pulled just the that opposite. off. Oh. No, yeah, I watch it and I'm like, damn, I can't believe I, I did this with what I knew at the time. That's really cool. Um, there's, there's almost nothing in there that makes me cringe. There's a couple of tiny things, um, but they're, they're really small for the most part. I'm, I'm amazed really uh so yeah so um so I, I got you know somehow i got lucky with music making um i i feel like making a documentary in a way is like making a, a big song like a big composition um making the transition smooth that for me like being in the band it's all about transitions when you're playing live or when you're writing songs too but uh did you feel that way at all or what, yeah. What specific parts of music did you bring into filmmaking? Yeah, I, I, I really feel like everything that in every way that I approached filmmaking was rooted in what I had learned being in, you know, a grassroots independent musician, you know, I mean, obviously it's different, but, you know, in the broadest way, just like you were saying, you know, it just had to do with, first of all, that whole DIY philosophy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I didn't embrace DIY because I thought it was cool. You know, I did it because there was no other way to do it. <laughs> it's like, OK, I want to play in a band. Well, great. You know, am I going to call up Columbia Records and they're going to sign me and put me in a studio? Like, OK, so you want to play music. Well, what do you got to do first? Well, you got to find some assholes who will play with you so you could have a band, right? And then you got to, you know, figure out some songs mm -hmm. and then somebody's got to write some songs. And then what was your you band convince... called? Uh, Otis and the Elevators. Cool. Did you write music or what was your. I did. Ask your dad. Oh, well, all right. <laughs> your dad will give you the inside scoop on that. You know, but again, it was like, okay, well then, if you want to be out there, you got to go play. Okay, where do you play? Who's going to let you play? Who's going to move the crap? Who, you know, it's just, you just had to do everything because nobody was ever going to do anything for you. Um, and so I guess when I started to think about making documentaries, it just, that was the only way I knew how to do anything. It's like, okay, I need to do this. So how am I going to figure out how to do it? Okay, now I need this. How, you know, so it informed everything everything that I did. Whereas like in contrast, my wife, okay. So she graduated from Brown because she's way smarter than me. And, <laughs> um, and, and that's a tip for all you kids out there. Always marry up. Okay. <laughs> marry up. And so while she was at Brown, she got, she decided that she wanted to become a filmmaker, but she, you know, she had never done anything. So she moved to New York because she knew that that's where filmmakers were and then just started, you know, interning for people who were filmmakers, you know, and learning by working with and for, you know, people who knew how to do it. Well, I didn't have that around me here in Champaign, Illinois, right? Like there wasn't that. So, you know, I just did it the only way I knew how, which is how I did music, which is like, okay. Okay, I want to do this. All right. Well, what's the first thing I got to do? Okay, got to figure out how to do that. Um, so that's where, you know, music really did came in, did come in. And I do think you're talking about the similarities. There are a lot of similarities. 
and maybe there are for all kinds of creative work. I don't know. Like you're a painter, yeah. you know, and I'm sure you see there's probably, I don't know, right? Like similarities between painting and music and completely. Yeah. Um, what's it like though being uh, married to a fellow documentarian? <laughs> well, we've never lived together, so it hasn't been a problem. <laughs> well, you signed the papers, and that's that's enough. <laughs> Did sign the papers? <laughs> of course, we signed a prenup first. Cool. Um, How? What's it like? Um, it's great. It's great. Uh, there's some people. Do that you say, admire anything about her her approach towards documentaries? It's oh yeah, but we we are very different. But yeah, oh yeah. What are the uh, differences? Um, the differences. Well, the differences. She is an experienced collaborator, and I only know how to do stuff myself. Yeah, wow. that's how I did it. <laughs> so she knows how to work with people, and I don't. And um, and she knows how to. Like when she starts a film, the first thing she does is reach out to potential collaborators and sort of sign them up as partners. And I'm like, wow, I don't have the slightest. Yeah, how the hell do you do that? I just, I just start. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a film about this. All right, well, uh, okay, here I go. I'm going to do this now. You know, so that. And, and, you know, she doesn't know how to do as many technical things as I do, but she is an editor. Mm -hmm. So she's edited not all but most of her films so we have that in common but she doesn't really know how to shoot much um but she knows she knows how to do audio you know i mean she she you know she she knows how to do stuff um when it comes to relationship i guess there's people who say opposites attract and i don't believe mm. that <laughs> i think that um you know relationships work best when you have shared interests um and as long as you're not exactly competing with one another you know it's like when when i was making well those other films you know and i was married to someone else it always felt like it was a fight to try to explain why i had to go out and shoot this thing right mm. now like i couldn't put it off i had to do it now and so then if you're your partner is also a filmmaker. You don't have to explain any of that stuff. They understand exactly, right? So like if Kelly's like deep in an edit, she doesn't have to explain to me that, well, she doesn't really have time to spend with me or to talk or even, you know, the, the, um, the space in her brain to even be present with me for a while. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I don't need that explained. I know where Completely. she is. And so, yeah. So we don't have to talk about that. And it's just understood. So you don't fight about any of those kind of things. Um, and then, you know, you have a person to, uh, to give you feedback on everything. Um, you know, I, I have to be careful because the competition thing impacts me more than it impacts her. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with our gender. Competition between you? Yeah. I wouldn't even assume there is any. I feel like documentary film is so you know for the for the people that <laughs> you would avoid that well it's more like um and and this isn't just about documentary this is just about relationships in general you know like if one person in a relationship if their career is going really well and the others isn't uh. that can create some 
real friction, even though, you know, like one doesn't have anything to do with the other, right? Like, so, but if you're in the same field, uh, you know, there's places where that intersects. It's more of a problem for me than it is for her. And I say it's gender related because, you know, in traditional gender roles, um, you know, I'm male, so I'm supposed to be better at it than she mm -hmm. is. And I'm supposed to be more successful. Um, and so if she is more successful and, you know, right now she is, it's not just that, it's not even just professional jealousy. There's that piece of, um, how can I describe it? You know, like, it, you know, it just has to do with your feelings of, you know, your maleness or something. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, it has to do with the time, my age and the, the way the world was when I grew up, you know, um, and the sort of toxic masculinity that got baked into me from, you know, growing up in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I, I in many ways, I, I'm aware of it and I'm not, you know, and I'm woke to a certain extent. But, you know, there's things about that that you can never totally shed. You know, they're always in there just somewhere. Um, I mean, so there's there's a bit of that. And that, you know, that can be hard, but it doesn't in any way, like, outweigh all the good stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just so thoroughly blown away by what you've created in your life and how you're still, Thank like... You just hanging around I, I don't know in in it in the idea that you would <laughs> the idea around. that you would even need to make anything else in your life just seems silly to me but you know creative people there's always that you know those bursts of ideas yeah. of of drive and you know you can't control how it's consumed and well there's that but you know it, you know you also, if you're not doing it, you, you know, you kind of feel like totally. you're a loser. No matter what, you know, no matter what you've achieved, it's like, oh my God. Which is like, ridiculous. May anything. I remind you what you've achieved? Right. <laughs> well, you know, I'll remind you, read, read interviews with John Lennon mm. after he came out of that whole period where he was completely away mm. from music, you know, and raising his son and then finally got back into it. He had those same feelings too. And I mean, John Lennon, <laughs> like it doesn't get any better than John Lennon, totally. right? And he was like, oh, I don't feel like, you know, I'm even alive anymore. Nobody remembers me. I mean, he had all that stuff too. It was John Lennon. <laughs> so uh, what would you, what advice would you give then to the creative people out there wanting to make, whether it's a social difference, difference or uh, just get their name in a book somewhere? I don't have any advice. That's a lie. Yeah, I really don't. Um, you said something really cool on our last day of class. Well, did you yes, write it down? I actually have it memorized. Tell me, tell me what it was. Is that a bad okay. interview thing to do to to know the word by word what what there's? No. I would just assume you would have something after all that, but <laughs> no, that's a great interview thing. No, the truth is, I. I remember a very small portion of what I say in classes. It's sort of a weird thing. And then someone will come back to you and say, I remember when you said blah, blah, blah. And I go, really? Did I say that? <laughs> well, it's on a slide if it gives you any hint. Oh, what was it? Yeah, I tried to make those slides so I would remember <laughs> to say those things oh, God. again. 
No, no. One of them that I, one of them I, that I used to say, and I don't know if I said it in your class, I'm not sure it's on the slide, was, um, oh, shoot. Uh, it has to do with, oh, yeah, to be successful in any kind of creative field takes two things. It takes hard work and luck, but only in that order. That was it. Oh, good. Bing, bing, bing. Did I have that on the George. slide? Yes, you did. It was so badass. Yeah, that is really good. I don't know. You know, I, maybe I didn't make it up. Maybe I, you know, you know, like a lot of things, right? There, you just you sort of across it. assimilate them. But maybe somebody else said that before me. Mm -hmm. It's possible. But yeah, the key to that is hard work and luck, and it has to be. But it has to be in that order. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like that. Yeah. Well. That's about all I have. I do so, believe that's true. I mean, I do have a lot more, but that's and, enough. <laughs> and okay, but you have a, you have a, you're in a situation where you can learn from your father, even though you're not in the same field, right? I mean, you know, your father got great at guitar. He wasn't just born that way, right? He did hard work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's hard for you because it's your own father. Also, we're my kids very don't. different. I think what he did is he sat in a room. Oh, yeah. and and played guitar yeah, all day. You two are I'm much totally more different. Social than that, but oh yeah, no. There's I I, I recognize how different you, guys <laughs> you hear my laugh. Heart. Have you heard my dad ever laugh? Like no, he he does. <laughs> Your dad's an interesting character. Yeah, I, you guys are not too much alike, but that doesn't mean that. There's no, a, the man is talented a, as shit. I mean, I don't know when I'm ever going to appreciate him yeah. to the extent he deserves to be, but. Yeah, but it's hard because yeah, he's your dad, you know, you know, and he's a pain in he's yeah, a pain in the I mean. ass, and he, he's stupid like all his yeah. parents are, and all that. Well, do you have any last words? Thank you so much for uh, yeah. So, yeah. oh, this was fun, but I do want to find out what you're doing these days at some point. Yeah. Okay, anytime. I really used to. I used to really enjoy our talks after class. Me too. I really did. Um, I don't think I never had a student who. I did that with the way I did with you. And of course, part of the connection is obviously because of your dad. But I remember you telling me about the the trip you took oh, yeah. <laughs> over break and and how sort of magical that was. And I and that was just, it was so, so great to listen to you talk about it and sort of just see the, you know, the sparkle in your eyes when you talked about that. Oh. It reminded me of being young and it was really That's cool. That's so nice to remember that. <laughs> so I haven't forgotten that. I, so I got that from you. Oh, yeah, that that was such a great class. I mean, you just, it's it was so funny just that you knew who I was before I knew that. Right. That was funny. I know, <laughs> embarrassing too. No, right? I'm not embarrassed by much. But yeah, I mean, I've never had a professor so not only qualified, but just uh, badass. I feel like education has truly lost well, its its badassery. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Thanks. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of badasses. Okay, out there. that's true. There really are, and you just have to find them. But yeah, so yeah, I do miss those talks. So um, yeah. Let's connect sometime. Also, I'll be having a um a house senior year, uh, and I'm gonna have a I'm gonna be living with my drummer of my band, so we're gonna be having house DIY house shows all the time. That's some news. Well, I, <laughs> probably 
won't be there until there's a COVID oh, vaccine upgrade, yeah. honey. I'm too old. Like I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah, going I back can, to school so in the in the fall. It's. It, do you think it's going to open? Yeah, but I'm not Jeez. going. Well, no way. I'll see you on Facebook. Thank you so much yeah, for well, so we can talk on the phone. Talking. No, this was fun. It's it's really yeah, good to talk too. to you as always. All Adios, right. amigo. Say hi to your annoying father yeah, too. I'll give him okay? a punch on the shoulder. Bye. Okay. <laughs>